Hello and welcome to the Amateur Skeptic Podcast, podcast number 53. We've been doing this for two years, people. Yes. And uh, I'm your host, Brian Heineser. I have to go to the Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. Joining me this evening is Mac. For the love of everything good and holy, get this goddamn thing out of me. And I'm also joined by Ian. Oh, good. My dog found the chainsaw. And uh, Kimberly. Just remember what old Jack Burton does when the earth quakes and the poison arrows fall from the sky and the pillars of heaven shake. Yeah, Jack Burton just looks that big old storm right square in the eye and he says, Give me your best shot, pal. I can take it. And, of course, Eric. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> How is everybody this evening? I'm good. Doing Happy right. President's Day. Mm. Yeah, I can't believe we're broadcasting on a holiday. Uh we're not. I've done it before. But yeah, we're recording. We're recording on a holiday. We don't broadcast. Did it Martin Luther King Day, didn't we? Um, you know, we we I think we recorded that day as well. Yeah. How is everybody this evening? Alright. Yeah, everybody's good. Yeah. Pretty good. And uh, everybody's ready to podcast. Born ready. You know the the amount of energy and enthusiasm. In this Skype call is really getting me pumped up. Let's do it! There we go. Thank you. That's what I needed. Let's move on to announcements. Announcements. Okay, first, real quick, um, we had a great couple of weeks um, just pass, and we don't have a whole lot on the schedule coming up, so I thought I would just mention um, I got to see Sean B. Carroll talk at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science on his book. He was a great presenter about he did a whole presentation on Darwin and his, um, you know, other scientists at the time and, and kind of putting Darwin's discoveries and writings and uh, all the changes into a historical perspective. That was really great. A couple of us went to see Neil deGrasse Tyson speak at uh, Mackey Auditorium. I thought that was a really fantastic speech. I have to say, one of the few times I've gone to see somebody speak where I was very surprised where the discussion went at several different points. Um, he would start something, and he would kind of go in a totally different direction, um, and it was great. I, I, I really learned a lot and, and really made me think a lot. He has such a good stage personality anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and the way that he moves on stage and everything is, I mean, he uses his whole body. When he's talking, he's not just standing there. His whole body is talking to you. It is, it, it's, an, I mean, I've never seen this before. Um, you know, cause uh, the stuff online d just does not really ref reflect his real presentation style, I don't think. Yeah. He, looked, uh, he was he was really terrific. You know, it kind of reminded me. There's a guy downtown who uh, um, he stands on the Sixteenth Street Mall and he's a robot. And some of some of Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of reminded me of the way that guy moved. It was really entertaining <laughs> for me. Excellent. Okay. Um, and finishing up the weekend, we had a drinking skeptically. Um, that was fun. Great place and um, some fun conversations there. And then I got to go to uh, Eudaimonia with the Denver um, Denver Atheists um, on Sunday. And that's a kind of a continuing discussion about how to lead the good life. And um, someone did a presentation on the science of happiness. And that was really interesting, um, trying because it is such a tough subject to really talk about. But they went into the polls and about how people ask questions and 
um, and what made up happiness. So what I found, I'll just share real quick what I thought was interesting is that what these science things determined was that happiness is generally composed of three things. It's um, your life circumstances, your base personality, kind of who you are at a genetic level and how you grew up and, and events in your early life, kind of making a, a baseline, and then the activities you engage in. And what was surprising is that your life circumstances, how much money you make, where you live, all that kind of stuff, contributes to about 10%, they said, of, of your happiness. 50% is your base personality and genetics, and 40% were the activities you choose to engage in. So I thought that was a real interesting discussion. I definitely believe that, though. That fits with what I've seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's stuff like yeah. they, they, they show that religious people generally are happier than the rest of the population. It's it's a statistic. It's the way that it is, and mm -hmm. I mean, and this is like, it's the same kind of thing. I mean, your genetics have a lot to do with that. So, the, just a real. I I felt like I was doing something skeptically almost every night of the week, and uh, which is great. I love that kind of stuff. So, um, coming up this week is is a little bit light. Um, on Saturday, we've got the IIG monthly meeting with Pet Psychics, Super Water, and Paranormal Research Project. Do you want to say anything else, Brian? Yeah, well, I'm I, I'm hoping that we can get moving on some of these. It looks like the uh, the Paranormal uh, Research Project the, that project is is starting to move. There, there's there's been some movement on that. Um, the water stuff, I got that out to everybody. Um, I need to call and make sure that they're still actually selling this stuff. <laughs> so before I can move forward on that, and then the pets, I could. Is that sure. that same water you reported on the yeah. uh, the uh, super hydrating water? Uh, no, I think you were. I was thinking about the alkaline water. Oh no, this about. is different. This is this is uh this okay. is different. This is a local um spa that's selling some super hydrating water. Uh, does the water is they do they make it out of dehydrated water? <laughs> right. Because um, they they add high they wa add water to dehydrated water and then mix water. Well, but they do break down the water into its um subatomic or submolecular components. Doesn't they have bigger atoms or something like that? Well, they're saying that the actual water molecule. That's what molecule, they molecule. right. But here, but here's the thing is that they say they're breaking it down into its subatomic sub particles. Well, that's what they're saying, right? So basically, they're breaking it back down into hydrogen and oxygen. And well, to do that, that's electric. what you would have to do. So subconductor would be breaking it smaller. Than yeah, I, I forget exactly what it says right at the moment. But either way, they if they if they did what they're claiming that they're doing, it's not water anymore. Yeah. So well, um, neither is alkaline water. Well, exactly. It's the same kind of thing. What they say they're doing with it, you know. But anyway, so yeah, so that but so that's one of the things that uh, that we're kind of working on, and but that's going to be more of an activism project. Um, you know, letting people know that that this stuff is you know kind of why it's bunk, right? And and so we'll see where that one goes. Mm -hmm. But but IIG is really gearing up to to put some stuff into action now. So. Yes. Um, that should be great. That's on Saturday, the 25th of February. On Friday, the 2nd of March, the Boulder Atheists have a special event called um, An Evening with Mikey Weinstein. And I don't know if we've discussed him on here before, but um, he is in the military, and he's been um, a real pioneer in the um, Military Religious Freedom Foundation. Um, I know that uh, they've gone through a lot of trouble to, to get him here, and um, it should be a really interesting talk, so I'd encourage people to check that one out on Friday night. On Monday the 5th, um, 
I just bought my tickets maybe an hour ago or so. Sam Harris is coming to see you, Mackie mm, Auditorium. I also have my tickets, and that is supposed to be recording night, so we're going to have to make some adjustments. Oh, I didn't even realize that. You're right, but That's yeah, okay. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be at Sam. <laughs> yeah, so am I. That's where I okay. will be as well. <laughs> Um, very exciting. I mean, we, we really have not had this many really big speakers that I've ever known about. So it's really been heating up lately, and it's a great opportunity. If, well, we if he's, need. you know, again, half as good as Neil deGrasse Tyson, we're in for an awesome night. Yeah, he's uh, he's certainly an eloquent speaker, but I, I doubt mm. when he uses his whole body to speak. That's why he's cheaper. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and finally on the calendar, the only real other major event I've got going on is on Saturday, March 17th. Um, is that St. Patrick's Day, right? Uh, yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the um, Mile High Skeptics are going to be attending the Metaphysical Fair. Right. And so, so um, yeah, and yeah, this is, ahead. I've got this on here for nine o'clock, but really we're going to meet for breakfast and then we're going to go over and we're, this time we're going to spend the day at the fair. Um, that's the idea. At least Misty and I are. And if mm-hmm. other people want to come and go, that, I mean, that's fine, but we're, tr- we're going to try and be there most of the day and take part in some of the activities and stuff that they've got going on. And because remember, we did the, you know, the astral projection lecture and some stuff like that. So there's some, there's some lectures going on that we want to go see. So mm-hmm. we'll be doing that. And awesome. then, gonna get what's that? You're not going to go get plowed? Uh, well, yes. Afterwards, we'll go get plowed. We'll do a drinking skeptically. Um, afterwards, um, and miss, I'm still working out the details on that. So that, that's in the works, but we definitely want okay. to do a, uh, um, a drinking skeptically on that day for, for two reasons. One, so we can get plowed and, and two, so we can talk about all the wonderful things that we did at the fair. Yeah. And we, we did. We had a great time last yes. time we went. Um, we did, if people remember, we did that episode where we, uh, did, we, we examined Brian's reading. I think we'll probably get more raw material for that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, we, we need to and, get... and just, it's a lot of fun to attend. Yeah. And it's five bucks. It's, it's, I mean, yeah, it's a ripoff because it's a bunch of charlatans, but, um, five, five bucks, bucks with, a, with your friends and, and kind of just being able to watch all the wacky is, is, no, no. I think a good value. I pay more to see Brazzo. Twice I've seen Brazzo. Yeah. I don't know that you can, I don't know that you can necessarily prove that they all come from Charlotte, North Carolina. That's probably oh. true. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, thank you for yeah. That that me. is that is where charlatans come from, I believe. Charlotte, um, Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, um, uh, the, you know, we do have a lot of them that come from there, but I don't think that that's a requirement. There could be other Charlottes in other states. There probably is. So that's your announcements for now, and um, I'll turn it over to Ian, who right. has some exciting news about uh, his work. Yeah, he's pimping himself again. Oh, he's do it, man. Do it up. Okay, so we get him a really big hat so he can do that. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. Uh, so another story. I can tell this story over a year ago, but it took this long for the issue to come out. But my story enforcer is all in a day's work. Uh, it's fantasy, urban fantasy. Um, can be found in Tales of the Talisman, Volume Seven, Issue Three. It is available on Amazon, and I recommend picking it up, reading it, and hopefully enjoying it. Leave good reviews, and- also. What if I pick and it up? And he's got a picture now on the author list. Yay! Yeah, oh, I good. had an author's page up on Amazon. I put that up a few months oh, ago. Oh, yeah, look at that! But you know, so it's cool. It's building up different things and linked to. Good job. Good. Thanks. All right, are we ready to move on and do some science? Yes. She blinded me. It's science. Where me? As I was looking around, th- this story attracted me because it was. Organic foods, high arsenic content in organic foods. And so um, 
This is a actually this is really cool. Uh, my wife showed me this on Slate, and then I found it a couple of other places as well. So, well, I shouldn't say it's, it's cool. What's cool about it is the way that they um, put out the paper. The paper is is published in an, like an open publishing forum, so anybody can download the whole paper for this, which I have downloaded and started to read, but have not um, finished it yet. So what they did is they took some organic formulas, some non-organic formulas, and they took some energy bars and stuff like that. And what they found is that any of the um, organic products that contained um, brown rice syrup had high levels of arsenic in it. Um, and in some of these, the, the cereal bars they were saying were um, like 20 times higher than um, than the um, than the FDA's recommendation for water. Um, and formulas, um, baby formulas, organic. Uh, baby formulas had twice as much as uh, as what is okay in water, and so what what's important to note here is that th- those levels are assigned for adults. Um, so that's adults drinking water, not infants. So where this becomes really scary is the infant formulas specifically, um, because they are because that is what infants are being sustained on is formula. And the and the dose is twice as high as water for an adult. So so there was some concern there. The cereal bars were like, well, that's an adult, and twenty and twenty times higher in that particular product is probably not an issue because you're not sustaining yourself on an energy bar or yeah. one of yeah. these other organic products. What's that? Well, the problem with it, the amount you get out of one bar, though, is probably you know what you shouldn't get within a few months. So you know. It's... Well, that they, they, okay, but. Here's one of the things that I really appreciated because as I was reading the the paper that was published, I was reading through the abstract, and one of the things that they did do is that they didn't um they they, they didn't try and make this a big fear mongering tactic. What they did is they said um that basically what needs to happen is that the FDA needs to set up some guidelines for arsenic in foods. Right. And that was their conclusion. It wasn't it wasn't that, you know, arsenic is killing us and we need to, you know, do something about it right away. It was that we need to have we need to we, we need to do some studies and find out what is actually a problem. Okay. And, and it looks like it looks like the reason the arsenic is in there is because brown rice tends to be high in arsenic because it takes in arsenic rather than the com- the compound looks to the rice plant very much like silica and they try to take in silica to help it, you know, essentially to help it work through waterlogged soil. Exactly, and that, yeah, and and in and rice grows in particularly waterlogged soil, so it's so it tends to pick up a lot of arsenic. And they and they and they picked out brown rice as being particularly susceptible to that. But I, but it seems like any rice would have the same issue, and anything that's picking up silica that way well, is going to be an the issue reason as well. would be it's because brown rice is essentially just. Just white rice that hasn't been made into white rice. Okay, there you go. Exactly, they haven't taken off the the husk completely. So, so I, that was interesting. Um, but I I like the way that it was reported, and I was kind of com- in my mind comparing this to what Doctor Oz did. Um, I still have some questions about this about this study, like how many labs did they use, um, and and some of the criteria, which I hope will be addressed in that in that full um download of of their research and what they did, but. You know, did they use multiple labs? I think that that's an important question to ask. Um, you know, their conclusions are not 
overly definitive other than the FDA needs to have guidelines. This needs to be looked at was their ultimate conclusion. And it's a preliminary study. Dr. Oz, which they, what they, which they reference here, he took an apple juice study and he, and he proposed it in a, in a fear-mongering way and he over, oh, yeah. and he over blew what he had. Now later, the study was redone and a lot of what he said initially was, um, was found to be justifiable, right? And it comes back to, again, there's no, there's no, um, FDA, um, recommendation for the amount of arsenic that should be found in apples. All they have is what should, what can be found in water. And, and do you know, is there, is there, do we process arsenic differently in a liquid versus a food? I mean, it's just, it, no, they it, did kind of keep going back to the fact that, that their studies were about, were comparing it to a water baseline. But I wasn't sure if that was because of what they expected a person to ingest or, you know, like I'm saying, if, no. if the delivery is that different, does that no, make a the, difference? The reason is because that's all the FDA has. And that's, that's the issue that, that they're pointing out is that the FDA only really has levels for arsenic and water. They don't have levels for arsenic and apple juice or in other types of foods. So they, so the only metric that they have to work with is water. Um, and then, then they talk about, you know, the, um, nat, um, natural arsenics and inorganic or, how did they put that? Inorganic arsenics and organic arsenics, did they say? Or did they say natural? Either way, there's two types of arsenics. It's the inorganic arsenic that they say we have the most problem with. But there's a debate on it doesn't whether, process. Right, doesn't process. The same way. Right. But there's a debate on how much of the natural arsenic we should be consuming as well. And whether or not we really can process them as well as we think we can. So once again, we, we're, we're missing a piece of information um, to be completely conclusive over here. So, one of my one of my questions that came up reading this article, I'm wondering if the brown rice is higher in arsenic because the arsenic tends to settle in the husk that they don't remove. Yeah, I don't know. They didn't. I don't. They didn't. No, I know that. they don't go into it, but it is a question I have. Right. So uh, I, they might be used, uh, focusing on the brown rice because the brown rice syrup is used in place of high fructose corn syrup right. for organic foods. Right, and I, so I went and I well, looked up. No, it does say in the article that the brown rice does tend to have higher levels of arsenic. Well, the, but he's saying that they focused on it as opposed to anything else because that was in all of these products that had the high arsenic. Right. Right. Um, the other thing I was curious about is if if the refinement process that causes that they use to make the brown rice syrup the super healthy brown rice syrup so good for you, <laughs> is the refinement process actually concentrating the arsenic dose? Well, and they didn't go into any of that. That that was, right. you know, that the, this study didn't address any of those kinds of things, and it didn't pretend to. Yep. So, but I'm still going to ask the question. Well, no, it's, I yeah. Um, I, I wanted to know what kind of sugars were in um, brown rice syrup, and it looks like it's dextrose... And a few other things, but it doesn't have the fructose in it. So brown, the brown rice syrup is not going to be as sweet as high fructose corn syrup because it's really that those fructose syrups um, that are really sweet to us. So it's not going to have the same sweetness. But they make um, the, on the uh, link that I put in there about the brown rice syrup, they do make some claims about the brown rice syrup. Um, basically, um, being harder for the stomach to digest, and so not leading to fat accumulation the same way that um, that high fructose corn syrup 
um, does. And there may actually be some evidence for this. Um, I was listening to a um, to a researcher on Science Friday this week talk about um, high fructose corn syrup and basically how we we've taken fats out of our diet. Um, because they thought that because they made that connection to HDL, and so they so they so they figured well if you take out these fats, and, um, and so what happened is we took fats out of everything and we added a whole bunch more sugar to make up because we still needed things to taste good. And he thinks that the introduction of the corn syrup is way worse for us than the fats ever were. And so and so that 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 was on Science Friday um, last week, and so that was a um, that was an interesting discussion, but I haven't looked more into that. But it does kind of relate to to um, whether or not the brown rice syrup might actually be a little bit better for you. But because it doesn't sweeten as well, are you going to end up using a heck of a lot more of it? So, I don't know. And so, I've heard all the different, you know, uh, and I don't know if it's just the the, uh, the corporate line that says that um, our bodies process sugar and it doesn't matter if it's high fructose or regular or whatever that... From the body's no. point of view, on a chemical level, it doesn't yeah, know the no, difference. No, no, I, I don't know if that's, that's, if that's that, supported or not. That's I, I think that's BS personally because no, no, I don't think the chemical composition composition is entirely different. Right. I think I think that uh, I think Max, right. I don't think that's actually what they're saying, and I think that that's a misinterpretation well, no, they, of what people they, are saying. They do say that on the commercial. They say that from your body's point of view, it doesn't matter whether it's fructose or whether it's whether it's sucrose. It's going to process the same way, and well, it's not true. I think that's true with fructose and sucrose for the most part, but I think dextrose is going to be different. And and I think we're we're mainly looking at table sugars and high fructose corn syrups, and it's primarily fructose anyway. So the sugar that the thing that tastes sweet to us is going to be that fructose anyway. So that I mean that well table sugar table syrup sucrose. I'm pretty sure table okay. syrup is sucrose. Uh, I think it's sucrose and fructose, much like high fructose corn syrup. And high fructose corn syrup has a slightly higher level of fructose in it. But there's been no studies that say conclusively that it's any worse for you than sucrose. But yeah. I, but there hasn't that's, been any direct comparisons to lactose, dextrose, or or some of the other sugars that we're uh, you know that we're getting as well. There's a lot of different sugars out there, and I think that you're probably right that we do absorb them differently. But once again. Um, this is just something that we're just now, I think, beginning to realize. It'll definitely be interesting to see. Like I said, you know, the, the numbers are so also just amazing to me. You know, they're they're counting, um, you know, in the order of zero to basically what about two hundred was the high numbers of arsenic parts per billion. Right. Those those kind of numbers just always kind of wig me out of just. What what else is making like I can't understand what a billion particles in a food is. Is that is that an ounce? Is that you know what I mean? Like and I guess it's different from each substance, but those kind of you know when you say it's got eighty parts per billion, well that's a lot of other stuff. But I don't know what all of it is. So I I, I guess it's just my ignorance when it comes to how they measure these things and trying to understand it in concert with everything else. I you gotta. I, I kind of get yeah. lost. No, I, it's easy to do because what are the levels that start to affect us? When when is it? When does arsenic become harmful? I don't know those numbers. Yeah. You know, and most of the public doesn't either. We hear arsenic and we panic. So it's in, so it's you know it's a knowledge issue. All right. I did look up at one point. I I, I got curious about the uh, arsenic apple juice thing, and I started looking at arsenic itself. And uh, from what I understood at that time. The way that arsenic actually harms us is by taking the place of something that our system needs, and basically it it blocks a process 
that the body needs to do because essentially you've got a neutral substance in there that doesn't involve itself in the process, but the body thinks that the, that the, that the neutral substance is involved, and so it thinks things are going on normally. It's really kind of interesting. Would it replace silica? Because, I mean, they, they are, you know, Oh, that's, that's in the plants. That's what right. the plant is looking at. Um, I don't think it was silica for us. I can look this up again and, and find out what it is, but... That's okay. We need to ask an arsenic-based life form. Okay. <laughs> All right. We ready to move on here? Let's sure. talk, about, to talk Mar- about the Mars experiment. The Mars experiment. Yeah, this is... So we have a big rover on its way to Mars. Okay. And so um, I found this uh, this article on uh, pop science, so popular science, and it is talking about um, the criteria for landing initially. So right. it, it's pretty cool. They 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 go through the steps of what this is going to have to do to land because um, the last rovers, of course, we know we kind of put um, big airbags around it and let it bounce, 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 and then open it up and let them go on their way. This rover you can't do that with; it's too big. So it um, so they have this um, this uh, entry. Um, so as it enters the atmosphere, and it's uh, seven minutes of terror. And so what it um, and they have this, and a nice illustration for you here that shows um, as this hits the atmosphere. And I, I appreciate um, appreciate this. You know, this is geeks because they start from zero minutes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, actually, one cool thing about this, um, if this is the one I'm thinking of, a lot of it was done here um, in Colorado at Lockheed Martin. And um, a few months ago at DASFA, uh, Denver Area Science Fiction Association, they actually had one of the scientists in talking about the mission itself. That's cool. Yeah, yeah one of the guys over at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science who does that uh, 60 Minutes in Space that I, I reference sometimes, he is one of the scientists involved in creating this whole landing system. And he's talked at length of the 60 Minutes in Space, and it really is fascinating. It's an extremely complicated landing system. There are a, a strangely large number of points of failure compared especially to the last one. You know, like the la- like I said, the last one was just this this effectively a, a air bubble around around it so it could bounce, and it didn't have quite the tr- the uh, the accuracy. But there weren't so many pieces to it. Whereas mm-hmm. if you look at this article and just the diagram, there's a lot of stuff happening that has to happen in concert and at certain times and um, all work together. And if one piece fails, all the subsequent steps are going to fail. Yeah. So, but he seemed nervous, of course. You know, he's they they really do kind of talk about this as those seven minutes of terror. Um, it, it's going to be a a butt clenching time for the people at NASA in August when this is coming down, but they're really pretty. Um, they're pretty confident, so it should be. It'll be great to see what happens. Yeah. And um, and I'll, I'll also plug the museum. I believe is going to be doing like a live show when oh, this yeah. happens. So oh, wow. um, okay. it's something I would love to attend yeah. in August. Yeah. So this, it's pretty interesting. You know, I mean, it, it comes in and it hits the heat shields. Um, the atmosphere, and then they eject two um, 165-pound uh, weights, and the, and the, that'll lift it up so and so they can get some maneuverability on it, and and then at some point they put up the parachute, and then they eject two more weights to level it out, and then there's some thrusters that have to happen, and it's all really cool. Yeah, and they're also saying that um, this may very well be. Um, instead of changing it up each time, the deployment of these kind of rovers, um, they're hoping that this will be successful and and be repeatable. 
Yeah. And the rover itself is, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure if this went into it on the the next page. It's huge. It's like an yeah. SUV. Yeah, no, it's, it's her- not this small little thing. Isn't it like ten tons? I think that I mean, might be. Is that the is whole that craft? Big? It's big for sure, and um, and it's also, you know, the, the the last rovers that they sent have worked astronomically well and and have exceeded their initial mission by so much. It's it's really amazing. Um, this one has its initial mission as a year. And yeah. um, that guy was saying that if it has the same, um, you know, they, they're very conservative in what they predict right. for, the, for the lifespan of the project, and they hope it will go on. If it does, it will be out there for um, decades. Yeah. If, it, so, if it has the same kind of success rate as the previous yeah. ones. Everyone that's actually landed on Mars and been able to do something with has actually lasted much longer than anticipated. Except for so, Phoenix. Except for what? Except for Phoenix, the Phoenix lander. Did that one actually land on Mars, though? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but it landed in a polar region, and uh, oh. and, and, and it right. froze during during winter, and it didn't okay. come back. But they didn't expect right. it to. Yeah. All the ones that landed in a warmer area have actually done extremely well. Yeah. But this one has a drill, so it can drill about two inches into rocks. Um, and it's on, it's yeah, on a six-foot-long arm. Uh, it's got a laser for for you know for uh, burning off the surface of, uh, of the rocks and stuff like that. It's got it's, it's another got, really cool piece to it. Yeah, they yeah. they basically vaporize the rock with the laser, and then the chromography thing um, can scan the gases coming off of the vaporized rock to figure out what it is. Right. It confused me though. It said it was looking at it through a telescope, and I'm pretty sure they mean microscope. And then they take the particles and put it into uh, um, uh, the spectrometer so that they can look at the um, the makeup of the, the materials and stuff like that. So it's got all sorts of cool analysis tools and stuff. Yeah. It's going to be cool. All they got to do is land it. Yeah. Fingers uh, crossed. Yeah. It's got a nuclear I did, uh, I did stick that article in there about how arsenic affects you. Okay. And what it does is it blocks ATP, which is the process that takes energy to the, take, takes energy to your organs and muscles. It won't affect the Mars rover, though. Arsenic's no, not an issue for it. Probably will not affect the Mars rover. In fact, it runs However, on plutonium. My, so my thought on the uh, my thought on the Phoenix rover, though mm-hmm. the one that froze, the Phoenix lander. Yeah, the Phoenix lander. If they burn that and it doesn't come back, that would be ironic. I'm just saying. All right, are we done with rovers? <laughs> <laughs> I think that killed it. All right, we're done that now. Okay. All right, so let's move on. I don't think this is a good idea. You can't just break all Ten Commandments in one day. God's going to hate you. That's the point. What can be scarier than that? Then tomorrow, I'll just repent. And both him and Jesus will be back on my side again. Wow, you're right. Christianity sure is convenient. Why would God make it any other way? Um, I have two different points to make with this. and Neither of them are probably quite what I'm going to Good, I'm glad you're going somewhere with it because I'm like, this is a non-story. Yeah. Well, okay. The initial thing is apparently Denzel Washington has been going around promoting his um big new movie Safe House, which he's paid and to do. It, what? Which he's paid to do. He's supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in it, he plays a sociopath, and he's made some comments about um how he prepared for the role. And one of the things he's continuously said is sociopaths are the majority of them are atheists. He doesn't. He says usually atheist. Well, yeah. yeah, and he's he's the quoting God. he's quoting a book that he yes. read about yes. the yes. subject. Um, yeah, that's offensive. Uh, but it's not though. 
Well, I, actually, so it is. You tell okay. me. Actually, I, what what I want to know is where that is. Where is that, it correct? Is it correct? Uh, is it is it correct? correct? But I, I, okay, I could probably go out find statistics that defend the idea that um, the majority of sexual predators are black. No, no, no. I, I don't care about sexual predators right now. Right I, now, no, I care I, about I'm sociopaths. Not, you show me. I want to see the data I, that says that right. sociopaths are. That's what I'm saying. Okay, he said something. He said, according to this data, I have. Um, the majority of sociopaths are atheists. Okay. I'm saying I could go out and find data more than likely that would say the majority of um, sexual predators are black Christian males. Doesn't matter if the data is accurate. The fact that I'm busy quoting this data in that content should be considered offensive towards black Christian males. So you're saying I should take offense to this? Ah, it's offensive. It's not. Whether or not you take offense, that, that's the next point I'm going to make, actually, believe okay. it or not. All right. There's a level of offense to it. It's ir- for the for the most part, it's just irresponsible for him to say something like that. As far as I'm no, concerned, no, I don't. I, I, it, it, okay. It's the same level. It's the same level as judging people by their race, their religion, and other stuff by saying, you know, the majority of sociopaths are atheists. You know, find more than one book that says it. Find some real stuff, but don't go blurting it out rather reckless. That's what he read. He he quoted he quoted a specific source, and we can go back to his source, and we can check that person's materials and see if he was right. That's what he used to do this role, and that's what the book said, and that's what he quoted. I'm not offended. Okay. Well, well, that's personal the, use group. That book never says that, but that's just a personal well, use group. And, and that might be true. And see, that's the other thing. Did, did the book actually say that, or did he work that in? You know, there's a lot of stuff there, and there is a level of offense to it. Like I said, the, the, if he's just quoting the book, the book itself is making the offense. It is, it is irresponsible and it is something that. Why? Because it's creating a stereotype. So? Uh, especially that negative one, it's, it's not responsible. I'm but sorry. we do this all the time. We do this all the time when we're talking about Catholics raping children. Yeah. Uh, my thought on this is that probably a very large number of these sociopaths give lip service, whether they're atheist or not, they give lip service to being Christian. And they do that because it's the most advantageous thing. I did actually see but, some references to that as I was looking this up more thoroughly, that, that sociopaths will, will make pay lip service to that kind of stuff. I, I, yeah. I saw that well, reference, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't the point is that The point is that the sociopathic mindset doesn't follow any belief system. It, it, it believes only in the self. It believes only in the survival of the self. It doesn't... It's probably why it's associated with atheists because generally that um, the, from the religious side, if you're not following them and it's all about yourself, you're obviously an atheist. But the, you know that, that would get into a debate about exactly you know, what these comments are like, what this says. But that's not actually... What got to me the most is reading this. It bothered me that the atheist community is actually making that big of a deal over it. Because to me, it goes with the trying to play the victim card, which is one thing we criticize the Christians for over and over again. We yeah. criticize all these other religious groups for doing. And I'm looking at this and the stuff like, oh, well, people are trying to make a boycott on movies and stuff like, no. Just, if, if, if you don't like the comment and you think it's irresponsible, say it and move on. But try not to make a huge deal about it because one of the things I'm very much afraid of with the present atheist movement is that they'll become so much like, um, what we are criticizing these other religious movements for becoming. You know, I don't want to see the victim mentality card played every single time something like this is said. Whether or not you find it offensive, whether or not you, you know, like I said, I think it is irresponsible of either Washington, if he actually put that into himself, or of the book itself. There's it, it, it a little bit of responsibility, to, uh, in my views, to um, having something like that, especially 
you know, just right out there without any explanation of exactly, you know, the, the bigger picture. No, he did give an explanation. That's what drives me nuts about this. He told us exactly where he got this opinion from. Yes, but he didn't go into how the book gives the big picture of it. It was it, also it, an off-comment. It was like, the, the, these are the things. He has four different interviews now. So what? More more... It, it kind of sounds to me like he memorized like three or four different three or four different things that the book said, and he he basically buzzworded it. He, that, he exactly. gave that at every he gave that at the interview. That was his interview. He had the same talking points every time. That's what I'm saying. And it and it doesn't. He, say, he basically memorized a speech for the interviews. Yeah. And he's not saying anything about atheists directly. He's saying that he read this book and this is what it said and this is how he played the character. He built a character around these things. So what? Who's got time to be offended by this? Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. It is overreacting. Whether or not you can agree on it being offensive or um, irresponsible is besides the point. It is overreacting, and I hope we don't see this happening more and more. The only thing you know, I want to know as a skeptic is where the data came from right. and whether it's a reliable source, because it could okay. be true. It could be that most, most sociopaths identify as atheists. And if that's well, what the, is that, if that's, if that's what it says, if that's what, you know, most of them identify as, then it's true. Who cares? We go on. What I want to know is, Ian, do you have a conscience? Um, that, that's a hard one to answer because it's how you define conscience. I suppose I do, but it's, you know. Okay. Do you have a sense of remorse? Yes. Do you yes. want to win? Always? Yes. Do you want to dominate? Always? No. Okay. Well, <laughs> you're borderline. <laughs> <laughs> No, but that but that comes back to the point is that uh, we, we, I mean this this comes back to I mean we can look at well I also didn't like the overall stuff like you know the test Mac just ran saying those things like actually some a lot of those things aren't necessarily negative but the connotation of linking them up with sociopaths makes them sound negative so there's also that within um what he's saying and it is trying to link atheism to sociopaths. Hell he's yeah. just he's basically just repeating points that he that he memorized I, I, out of the yeah, book. I understand, although Brian, uh, no, Eric, I think was the one that was saying he understood that that book actually doesn't say that. But that like, the that person be, on the message board said that. I, I haven't read the book. <laughs> I, that, but that's the way that we should be attacking this: is is what he's saying true? Right. Let me ask you this, Brian: yeah. Would it make a difference if Denzel came out and said? Yeah, I said that because I really think atheists are wrong, and I don't really care if it's factual as much as people get the idea that okay. atheism is wrong. So, I, and I'm I'm making this up. Yeah, I'm no, not yeah. accusing. Um, then you have a story. But if that was his intent, the same way that um, sometimes people use the media to 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 basically put down a group. If that was the intent of it. Then does some of the stuff that Ian's saying matter? Yes, then, then it matters to me if he's if he's coming out and saying this is what I believe, but that's not what he did. If if, mm. if that's the case, then if that were the case, he would be irresponsible using his perceived power and influence to push an agenda that's not true. But that's That'd not necessarily the case. But like I said, all in all, I'd almost like to see this haven't got have not gotten as much attention because it is. The victim card, and I don't want to play that. I don't, you know, I don't want, I personally don't scream, oh my god, I'm um, being attacked every time I see something like this. I know. Kimber help, help, I'm being repressed. Yeah, I mean, yeah exactly. Kim yeah. Um, Kimberly, do, do you, I mean, do you take offense to this? Do you think that he meant it to be offensive in that way? Um, 
I don't take offense to it because, uh, as I've said on other podcasts, that is a very, very high bar for me. Okay. Um, I do, however, think that we do find a lot of media picking. It, it's a great attack um, attack method of scientists say X. Right. It doesn't matter afterwards if X is true or not. If it makes the public opinion or the public um, thinking go the way you want it to. Well, so, I okay. mean, you could even go as far as, you know, showing people did it with racism. People have done it, um, you know, in Nazi Germany, you know, Jews are the cause of this. It doesn't matter in the end if that's true or not. It's, it's, pro it's disproven. It still riles people up. And this is a, yep. you know, we've talked about before how atheism is a very touchy subject for people. And if this is riling them up, not and not necessarily the atheists up, but you know, people who are against atheists, I could see it. I think this is very, very minor. This being said, I, I, I would not put this as a major like watchdog kind of. Oh my, what's going to happen next? I'm not worried that way. Yeah, we, I'm not offended. I'm, I'm kind of indifferent to Denzel's yeah. personal opinion of me. Oh, well, so am I. We put but too much. It, it did feel like it was trying to grab the attention, trying to use, you know, oh look, they'll say that. Let's try and get in there and, you know, make a big fuss over it. And I so don't want to see that. It scares me. But it's a two-second comment in a four-minute interview. Like that, he he said he said the same comment in slightly different ways in about three or four interviews now. Yeah, three or four. So different he's interviews. seen it, but I agree. It, it's a small comment, and we can't be grabbing onto everything like this and trying to get the attention from this. Let's look for more positive things to get the attention from, more reasonable things to get people to say, hey, you know, these guys are different from these other religions that okay. jump on the back. But what if that's what the data shows? What if we go we find all the data and everything and it says that the majority of sociopaths are atheists? What does that now mean? I I want a bigger picture around it, though. That's the other thing. Well, I mean, see, but I mean, it, the, I mean the, and this comes back to the to, Facts don't sway anybody anyway. It, you've always mm -hmm. got to make an emotional argument because even if the facts say that that's not true, it doesn't matter now. Are we done with this one? Yeah, we're, we're, we're done uh, with it. Well, uh, I, I made my, my real point that the secondary point got made as well. All right. So we can move on to the main topic of tonight. Yes, the science of sci-fi. <laughs> So as you know, I I think our listeners know we're pretty much geeks here. I I don't know. Kimberly is the only one who I'm not sure how geeky she really is in this kind of thing. Oh, um, I, I, you know, I didn't count. I didn't contribute any particular thing, but I'm I'm pretty. Yeah, yeah. Our next segment, the science of sci-fi, fits us really well because well, it, for any of our listeners, they probably have gotten the impression that we're pretty much a group of geeks, and we're, we're rather proud of it, I think. And so a little while ago, we came up with the idea of doing this. Um, episode. It's taken us this long to get around to putting it together, but the science of sci-fi really, I think, fits all of us fairly well. So, all right. So why? It, why does it fit us? Yeah. Why does it fit us? Well, f first of all, like I said, we're geeks, so we all are interested in the science fiction aspect. Of well, we, we all bite the heads off of bats. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> But That's yeah, how we, geeky we, we are. Languages yeah. change over time, Ian. <laughs> 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 right. All right, I'm but, sorry about uh, that. We, we regularly make references to all sorts of sci-fi. You know, Doctor Who, we've talked about Star Wars, Star Trek, stuff like that. We, we've made references time and time again. And obviously within the realm of skepticism, the study of science is important. So 
you know, this just so fits our style. So most people that listen to the podcast probably aren't too surprised that we're finally doing this. I'm sure they're shocked. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so well, tell me, what, so you're going to start off with uh, Doctor Who. Okay, this can function as a sonic blaster, a sonic cannon, Mommy. and a circle and fold sonic disruptor. Doc, what you got? Uh, I've got a sonic cannon. Oh, never mind. What? It's sonic. Okay, let's leave it at that. Disruptor cannon. What? It's sonic. Totally sonic. I am sonic. Oh, a sonic what? Screwdriver. Anyone who the new series, especially Doctor Who, now does everything with a sonic screwdriver. Originally, the old series, it was pretty much a screwdriver. You use it to, you know, as a tool to fix stuff. To, it could undo locks and stuff like that. Then in the new series, it somehow has a million new things it can do as a scanner, as a tracker, as all sorts of weird stuff. So the first article here is Doctor Who's World Just a Step Away. And it is talking um, about the, his sonic screwdriver and Spock's tricorder and talking about how there's actually plans to create a miniature DNA decoding device that basically you can... What's that? Yeah. More like the tricorder. Yeah. yeah. Well, the medical tricorder specifically. Right. Yeah. yeah. So they actually, you know, something within... A lot of the articles in this segment are about this kind of thing, where something that's been introduced in sci-fi is technology that's within our reach, that we're actually working towards we're very close to actually having. Uh, the smartphones are not far from it right now. Yeah. And you could basically scan, uh, scan like a one of those funky little square things with the squiggles in it with a smartphone, and it'll it'll tell you things based upon that. Well, they can pick up magnetic fields, too. But basically, this device, would you could run DNA through it, and you know, I, it doesn't really give how quick I'll do it, but supposedly it, um, by 2015, it's supposed to have 500,000 species of DNA in it. So you, you could basically mm. say, okay, what's this hair run it through? Oh, that's a Australian rat, and you know you have that good of detail on. So it's that's you know, good. It's worth it. You, you know yeah. what this is going to do though is it's going to take one more thing away from uh, Bigfoot hunters. People will say, "Well, we found <laughs> hair." And a uh, Cooper, yeah, what's it called? The funky little rat thing, the Cooper Cabra. Chupacabra. Chupacabra. Yeah. Yeah. Mangy dog? So, mangy, yeah, dog with mange, yes. Uh, you guys hear about the uh, XPRIZE? Their XPRIZE is, gonna, is doing a, a reward for people making basically a medical trans, uh, tricorder. Really? Yeah. Cool. Excellent. And then the next one actually goes into the sonic screwdriver itself. This whole idea of using a sonic device to manipulate screws and stuff. And there really is work going into a real-life tool do, to do that using sonic. And um, it talks about researchers warned that the real-life sonic screwdriver will have more limited capabilities. Yeah, that's not surprising. <laughs> uh, but it'll be able to use small objects, move them, manipulate, move them around by basically using sonics. Yeah, but so there is yeah. Go ahead. Even even though even screwing in a screw is 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 a little bit beyond this device at this time. It says they could potentially undo screws. Hmm. Well, maybe they could. I don't know that. Well, I'm doing it makes no more sense than doing yeah, it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. Talking about a place. Yeah. So, but it's still kind of a lot. It's along the same lines, using sonic waves to manipulate objects. All right. So, you know, it, it just kind of cool that you know that there is there is actual science in science fiction. Okay, so the next one goes the opposite way. The next one is um actually the 
subject that started all the science of lightsabers. Yes. Now, what I love about science lightsabers is basically you have Lucas came up with something that had no science to it. He just wanted a light sword because they were cool and they look. Cool. Well, they are cool, and yeah, they do. They are cool. They look cool. They are an awesome weapon. But Lucas wasn't sitting back thinking, "Huh, I better make sure this has science to it. It'll fit within the realm of you know what's possible." I, that had to be the last thing in his mind. Right. He but was he, concentrating on dialogue, I think. Right. Well, and, and, and even though, even <laughs> as I remember, in the first like and, RPG, you know, the story pacing too. Yeah. In in the first <laughs> right. in the first role playing game of, of Star Wars, you know, the lightsaber really was still not. It, I mean, it looked like technology, but you still had to give it its initial power through the Force. Right. Right. So obviously, you know, people who are more at a higher geek level than us have went said, hey, let's figure out how the hell these stupid things work. And they actually went through, and through the years, because this develops little by little. I have books that show the initial idea with the diagram of dampers and all that. And, you know, they you can go through now and um, find the schematic of Anakin lightsaber is on the Wikipedia link. And it shows, supposedly, the inner working of the lightsaber. Uh, with the power field conductor, um, the power cell, cell, the insulate energy gate, crystal chambers, all that. And basically saying, okay, this is all the stuff that you need to make it work. Right. Now, one of, interestingly enough, one of the diagrams um, that I remember seeing for this showed that it had a superconductor in it. And, and, you know, right now, of course, for us to have a superconductor, we have to, you know, cool something down to, you know, sub-zero temperatures. Um, you know, that, and so if they have, if, they, if we were actually able to make a superconductor that worked at room temperature, why, why wouldn't this be everywhere? In, even in Star Wars? Well, it probably it's is. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, why, why would be? Repulsors are probably take a lot of a power. Yeah. Yeah, maybe they are. I just but, don't remember them on the schematics for the uh, Millennium Falcon. So one of the things that came up in all this is the fact that lightsabers actually are not laser weapons. They're plasma weapons. And they use okay. uh, magnetics to stabilize the plasma field and control it. Now, apparently someone found a flaw with that and said, well, the plasma would not connect like we see because um, plasma shouldn't react quite that way. Basically, you should not be able to pass you know, the lightsabers should pass through each other and been funny if they were to hit. So, we have another link here where someone came up with yet another possible solution to the problem. And what their solution is, is when you activate the lightsaber, you actually are, um, there is actually a metal pipe that um, pops up at the same time. That is where the plasma is being generated from. And that is actually what connects when their um, the lightsabers are connecting. Well, that one's not one that actually makes quite uh, what we have is we have a concept that was introduced in a movie to not be scientific, just for the cool looks of it. And we have progressing the people who have come and said, okay, let's try and figure out if there could be a possible way to make it, even if we don't have the science to do it, and you know, give it a, a scientific explanation. And to me, that is just you know, one of the great things we keep seeing in science fiction, the innovation of saying, okay, well, let, uh, let's take the idea and go somewhere with it. And just, you know, whether or not it's going to make any sense, whether or not it's ever going to be made, it's just, to me, there's a cool sense to have a scientific ideas behind all this stuff. So that's one thing I really like about lightsaber one, is to actually see the build up and progression of going from, you know, one thing to something that science might actually be able to make someday. 
All right. It is a hallmark of the of the fan base, and Absolutely. I agree. I think it's yeah. I think it's a lot of fun. Well, there's no real difference between that and Star Trek. The communicators in the first place were not uh, not feasible, and now we've got phones that size or smaller. Yeah, but they were always closer because I mean we had you know radios, ham radios, and and stuff like that at, at that time. So there was a lot more to make that plausible than the lightsaber. Anyway, so uh, let's talk about Stargate. Open the iris. That wasn't supposed to happen. Stargate is a started off as a movie, uh, became a TV series on Sci-Fi and Showtime that lasted for 10 full seasons and then a, sen- a spin-off for five more seasons and then another spin-off for like a season and a half of Stargate Universe. And essentially uh, what I wanted to talk about to start off with was the gold technology, who are the bad guys in Stargate. All of their technology, first of all, there's no real gold technology. Everything they've got is pretty much stolen from other other races. But everything that they've got, all their technology, seems to be based on the element Naquita, which is a super heavy, super dense, um, superconducting element. It's what the Stargates are primarily formed out of, and the Goa'uld actually have Naquita in their blood as well, which allows them to operate their hand weapons. I presume that the Naquita's effect in the bloodstream is to essentially connect them with the power source and the hand weapon. Now, Brian, you've watched the Stargate show as well. Yeah. So, you and I are both the ones who've seen it. I don't know about Eric or Ian. Oh, Ian's watched it. Yeah, I've seen this part of the episode. But they have what the one thing that that hasn't come out of Stargate is real technologies. Yeah, I I still want to see the uh, Stargate technology to form a wormhole from one place to another. That would yeah. be nice. But, yeah. Although it is, you know, they they talk about wormholes in. Uh, they talk about wormholes in theory, and scientists believe that wormholes actually exist currently. They believe that it is a real thing. I don't know that, that that's true. I mean, certainly that, that there's been some proposed mathematics, but I'm not well, sure the that... The, yeah, the concept, yeah. But I don't know that any of them actually... The concept I mean, is out there. Yeah, the concept. So but, it's, it's, potentially, it's potentially within reach. Uh, uh, well, you got to prove string theory first, I think. Yeah. Well, you also... Um, we, all the theories say that it would take a huge amount of power to create them. Right. You know, we, we don't have anything within our abilities to create that much energy to um, artificially make a wormhole. One, really uh, one of the par- one of the properties of the of the material Naquita that the Stargates are composed of is that it stores tremendous amounts of energy. Uh, this is also it also seems to enhance whatever energy is put into it, as we've seen in several of the episodes where they formed where they basically made a Naquita bomb or essentially made a Stargate blow up. And when a Stargate blows up, it takes the planet with it. Right. They also, uh, they also, they had uh, multiple different races in there, and those multiple races each had their form, their different forms of technology. Uh, we've talked before on the show, I've mentioned the Asgard before, particularly in reference to gray aliens, because it's pretty much what they are. And uh, the Asgard were a more benevolent race of aliens who took the form of the old Norse gods, or basically 
masqueraded as the Old Norse gods in order to help humankind along. The Asgard technology is based primarily on the super-dense element neutronium, but Asgard technology seems to be based mainly around um, teleportation. Most of their technology seems to, seems to be involved with teleporting things from one place to another. Well, we also know they have cloning technology because they um, clone themselves to being um, uh, sexy. Correct. The Asgard also cloned themselves to the point where they were essentially immortal because if a person, if one of their race died, their mind patterns were essentially just stored in crystals until they could be put into a new cloned body. Right. But even though they were essentially immortal, the bodies that they were cloning were just getting weaker and weaker as they went as they as time went along. And like I said, they were sexless and could no longer reproduce. So you know, they were actually you know while they were immortal, they're also kind of a dying race, which is kind of ironic. Yep, I think that was a dying point. immortal race. Yeah. Another item from Stargate that is becomes very very important as time goes along is a metal called trinium, which is when, once it is refined, becomes a hundred times lighter and stronger than steel. So, um, tritium becomes extremely important in Earth weapons technology as time goes by. As the Earth starts to utilize the weapons that they utilize, the weapons that they're essentially absorbing from these other races, they modify it with the with the other technology that they find to essentially pretty much become the dominant race in the galaxy over time. So Stargate science is more, um, you know, they give an explanation for it, but it's definitely up there with stuff that we can't quite um, reproduce right now. Right, but it would be like the physics of the Buffy Burks types of stuff, you know, where, where, they, where they've done, where they've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how stuff works in their universe. Right. right. That's so it's more, thing. it's less that it's inspiring our science and more that they've got consistent science in their universe which is inspired by what we currently think about science in ours. Right. So, right. you know, it, it's definitely good to have that much structure in, in a scientific world, in a science fiction world, that says, okay, you know, we know how it all works, we have explanations for it all, you know, it's, it's someone, well, I, I'm sure they're geeked out that I'll find all sorts of flaws in it, well, how can that do that, 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 how does that generate so much energy, blah, you know, it's like, well, in that world, apparently it does. Right. But it, you know, it's more it's more thought out of the old Star Trek series was. Well, so, maybe. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, the, the the time of the old Star Trek series, not no science fiction was really that thought out. Yes. So they had to do a lot more backtracking to explain things. But more stuff that they came up with in that series has become has led has inspired actual technologies than any other series. That's correct. I will agree with that completely. Plastic machines, Buck. You can't argue with a machine. And I think it's time to talk about it. Yep. So, I, I compiled a list of stuff that uh, that Star Trek has actually stuff that is actually inspired. And really, the, you got to talk about the communicators first. Um, the the original communicator, which really inspired some of our first um, cell phones. Once they got it down to a point where it wasn't a brick anymore, I remember my first Motorola Flip um, cell phone. Um, that and it definitely looked a lot like the communicators from Star Trek. I think you can give them some credit just for cell phones in general, right? I mean, sure. back in 1967, the idea that you could walk around and talk without a wire was kind of unheard of. 
Right. I mean, we certainly had those technologies because we had TV and we had radio and we had, um, I, I'm pretty sure that there was ham radio and, and some of the, and some of that kind of stuff, but man, they were, I mean, they, they were not very mobile. And certainly no, people. Uh, ham radio was a big, basically a big box full of glass tubes. Right. So. And so was your television. Right. So, I mean, and certainly, so, the, I mean, they really did inspire, um, the cell phone in a lot of ways because a lot of people were watching the show and they, they went later, much like people did with the lightsaber, except for they went and they figured out how, how can we actually do these things? So it inspired a lot of science, um, for sure. So definitely the, uh, um, the communicators did. The hypo spray. There's another one that finally we have, um, a way to deliver. It seems like it might be kind of limited what kind of drugs it can deliver, but certainly now you can deliver certain types of drugs using, um, it, it uses a laser to penetrate and, and make, um, microscopic holes and, and, and put the uh, the medication into the skin, so that technology is evolving. So so we have we have hypo sprays now, um, but of course you know the big one is antimatter. We we actually have antimatter now. Um, so I mean of course it's by no means um, feasible to to make antimatter the way that they used it on the show. Um, we just can't make enough of it. But the um, you know it actually the science actually kind of works. You take a, a, a you know a, a positive matter particle and a negative matter particle, and you bash them together, and you get a hundred percent of that energy transference that happens in that collision. Um, so definitely, it, it I mean it is a big power source in a lot of ways. Um, but to make antimatter is extremely expensive, but they can um, do it. A more affordable method of doing this might be to try combining not matter and antimatter, but pasta and antipasta. Probably not. Huh? You, you just ruin the pasta when you do that. That's what happens. <laughs> um, and then, of course, the other one is uh, teleporters. We can actually teleport. Um, I know that we can teleport photons. And this article that I put up there talks about uh, um, using um, quantum entanglement to uh, essentially uh, move particles um, from one place to another. So they can certainly do it. Now, much like the antimatter, it's, it's really unfeasible for, you know, to, to think of transporting a human. Um, I mean, one that the storing the amount of data, um, that, you know, or for, for the human body is, um, prohibitive, plus the amount of energy that it would take to move you from one place to another. So, but certainly a lot of technologies have been inspired from Star Trek. Actually, the, the process they're talking about with sending the particle sounds less like they're actually transporting the particle and more like they're facsimileing it. Well, but that's... More like, it's a, more like it's a fax machine. Well, but you think about it, that's what the transporter really was doing anyway, is that it was breaking down the particles on one end and reassembling it on the other. It couldn't have been the same particles. It was a pattern that they were reassembling, which is why they had a pattern buffer in the transporters. Right. So, so yeah, so they are really kind of talking about the same thing. Which now, is... When you, which, when when you in, consider it... And the fact that essentially every time you use the transporter, you're dying and being recreated. It's really kind of a gruesome way to travel. Yeah, exactly. But that's kind of where, you know, the, you think about the holodecks that they had in the next generation. Um, it, it, it was a similar technology to transporters that allowed them to, um, to create the, um, oh, God, what, what, what is the thing that created all their food and everything too? Replicators. 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 So they had the replicators, which yep. was connected to the holodeck. All those technologies were associated with each other. Yep, replicators in replicators are in Stargate too, but it's a totally, totally different connotation there. 
Right. But in but in Star Trek, essentially, you tell it, hey, I want this, and it takes and forms the particles and creates the object that you want to create. And and it was and it could be physical objects or any sort of drink, you know. Um, it it didn't matter. It could pretty much create anything. They, they in in the show they were always kind of you know not pushing it as far as what the implications of I think what the technology could have been. So, but pretty interesting. But you think T about Earl Grey it. Hot. What's that? T Earl Grey hot. Exactly. Exactly. But you know, you think about it. Well, if you had a if you had a transporter like they're talking about. You could clone yourself using the transporter. Why could. couldn't you make two copies? One good, one evil. Right. Or was that only one episode of Star Trek? Uh, that was, uh, you episode. know, they did a couple of those. Um, but, you know, you, you think about it. The guy that went down there with the red shirt never actually had to die. Because if they just stored his pattern back on the ship, you know, when he died, they just they could just recreate him. Actually, they never really oh, did explore that. No, they him. didn't. What's that? Lo- local authenticity. Yeah. Local author Will McCartney um, wrote a story in the book talking about programmable matter, and he had a transporter kind of thing that did save um, the people's um, readings, and you can make copies of yourself, and you basically were immortal. Right. And there is a level where, you know, the technology of the transporters, if done in a logical manner, could make people immortal. We've seen it rejuvenate, we've seen it do all sorts of funky things when they've decided to use it for it. They never really follow up over again after the episode, but you know we've seen it used in a lot of um, similar means. And yet, slingshotting around the sun's been used how many different times? Ugh. To go back in time. <laughs> yeah. Another one from the Star Trek universe. I don't have a, an article to back this up, but um, you know, in, in Next Generation, they had those consoles that were basically reprogrammable touchscreens, and right. um, and that's another one that's really kind of especially from what I've seen of Windows 8, is going to be a very much a reality. They're going to look similar. And, um, yeah, and we, and we can do a lot of it already, but just that whole interface of everything can, um, you know, transform and, you know, getting away from the idea of, like, a keyboard input only to, you know, really being able to, to remap it and stuff like that. Again, not, not entirely from Star Trek, but everything I see coming out of Microsoft my mind flashes straight back to those episodes, you know. So I, I do think the people creating them were inspired to duplicate that technology. Yeah. Right. Well, certainly, like the Microsoft Surface types of technologies. I mean, it's kind of there. <laughs> Very cool stuff. All right, we have to, we have to conclude now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the uh, I, I do want to add though that the uh, the tricorder is the actually the most economical piece of Starfleet equipment, only costing 75 cents a piece, because it's a tricorder. Oh. Say goodnight, everybody. Oh, don't end that. Don't end that. What do, we, what do you want to end on? Oh, I guess that's the best we're going to get. Okay. Tricorder. Good night. Good night. All right. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. For more information about the Amateur Skeptics, go to AmateurSkeptics.com. To send us feedback, suggestions, or big flaming insults, feel free to contact us at WTF at AmateurSkeptics.com. Other contact information can be found on our website. 
You can leave a voicemail for the Amateur Skeptics Podcast at 720-295-7785. Music for this podcast was provided by OFM. To find out more about OFM, go to myspace.com forward slash OFMHQ. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons, no derivatives, 3.5 license. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. Amateur Skeptics website, Facebook, and podcast album art is provided by and copyright Shadow Knight Digital Portraiture. Larger prints or custom pieces are available upon request. 